Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Well, thank you very much. I didn't know there were so many people in Canberra. It's very exciting. <laughs> um, one of the very first Indian words to enter the English language was the word loot. Loot is a, uh, is a Hindustani Urdu uh, verb, lutna, to plunder. Uh, and it was unknown outside the plains of North India uh, until it uh, suddenly gained currency in the mid-18th century uh, and uh, has never left the language since. And probably as good a place as any to try and understand how this happened would be the Castle of Powys uh, on the Anglo-Welsh border. From the outside, it's as British a building as you can imagine. You come up to it through some Tudor gardens to this enormous uh, fortress sitting on a rock, um, grim-faced, but go inside and you're in a completely different world. Up a particular turret, you will find a khazana, a great treasury, containing more Mughal loot than any one collection in India, even the National Museum in India. You will find elephant armor, spears, swords, shields, Hindu statuary, uh, gorgeous chess sets of ivory, and some quite substantial and historic pieces of loot. You'll find the palanquin of Nawab Siraj Daula of Bengal left on the battlefield of Plassey uh, after uh, the famous battle that initiated uh, political rule by the East India Company. You'll find down a corridor to the left the campaign tent of Tipu Sultan, another uh, victim of the East India Company whose capital Sri Rangapatnam was plundered in 1799. Uh, and the goodies, including gorgeous remains of his throne, uh, beautifully inlaid uh, tiger heads with rubies and topaz, um, uh, sitting uh, in the centre of this collection. When we think of the British in India, almost all popular culture and quite a lot of the history which is written is focused on the very brief period of the British Raj, which only lasted 90 years, from 1858 to 1947, from the Great Uprising uh, to uh, independence. But before that period is a much longer period of 250 years, when British influence in India was mediated not through the government, but through a for-profit corporation, through the East India Company. It was founded in 1599, uh, in uh, Moorgate Fields, about 20 minutes' walk from the place just south of uh, the river where Shakespeare was then writing Hamlet. It was performed two months later for the first time in the Globe Theatre. And if you had attended that meeting uh, in Moorgate Fields on the 24th of September, 1599, you'd have seen an extraordinary cross-section 
of the population of Elizabethan London there, as well as the Lord Mayor and the sort of buttery burghers in their ruffs and, and top hats and uh, uh, all the usual uh, uh, finery of, of the rich Elizabethan merchant. There were large numbers of much more humble men uh, there who, um, writing their names at the door with the notaries uh, in a list which still survives in the Indira Office collection in the British Library, uh, these people wrote their names as vintners, skinners, haberdashers. And the importance of this was that the man who called this meeting, who was a man called Customer Smythe, uh, who was an Elizabethan entrepreneur, and he'd already made three fortunes before this. In his 20s, he made a fortune importing currants from the Greek islands. He then took over the customs of London, hence Customer Smythe, uh, where he made a second fortune. And then, in middle age, he launched his most ambitious project, something called the Levant Company, um, which uh, uh, imported spices from Aleppo and from Cairo. But in 1595, this business, which was a closed business, 35 rich merchants pooling their capital uh, in order to uh, import these, these high-value items, in, seven, in uh, 1595, this business got into trouble because the Dutch realized they could just sail straight around the Cape, go to Indonesia, buy nutmeg and pepper uh, and the other spices they were after, uh, and bring it back at, at a quarter of the price uh, and sell it in, in Europe. So Smythe calls this meeting in September 1599 with a new business model in mind, something that had only been tried three times before. And this is something which we're all very familiar with today, but, but which was then a dramatic innovation, the joint stock company. Up to this point, most businesses in the world had either been family companies, where, like, you know, the Medicis, they pool, a bunch of cousins pool their capital and lend money, or Marco Polo and his father and uncle heading off to China, or their guilds, so a group of, say, Suffolk wool merchants pool their capital and go off and sell broadcloth in the Low Countries. But a joint stock company is something that has a technically limitless amount of investors, none of whom particularly expect to be consulted on the executive business of the company. It's not a group of wool merchants, it's just anyone that has spare cash. And this meeting has, the, the, the original subscription list is about 15 pages long, with people at the beginning giving £1,000, £500, £700. But at the end, they're giving £5, £6, £5, £3. And they're ordinary investors putting in what they can. And enough was raised that day for um, Smythe and uh, his captain, uh, uh, Sir James Lancaster, to go and buy ships the next day in Deptford. They reject a creaky hulk called the Mayflower, which is sitting there. They, no one knows what happened to that. Um, but they then go and buy um, a an ex-pirate ship, which, and I'm not joking, is literally called the Scourge of Malice. Uh, and uh, some, someone rapidly realises that it needs to be renamed, so it gets called the Red Dragon, which uh, sounds like a sort of country pub in Wales and suitably unthreatening. Uh, and off they sail. It doesn't get very far because just off the coast of Dover, they're becalmed. There's no wind, so they sit there for two weeks and people sort of have picnics on the white cliffs and wave at them. And this great expedition looks, looks very unlikely to, to achieve very much. But in due course, the wind does pick up and they do get to Indonesia. And they 
find a Portuguese carrack coming in the opposite direction, and as they're all pirates on board, they literally board the Portuguese carrack, empty the, 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 the spices out of its belly and put it into their uh, hold, and then sail back to London, where they sell uh, the product for £1 million, which is enough to make all their fortunes. And this starts the company off. Uh, and for uh, the next 30 years, they are trading in spices, but with ever-diminishing returns because of Dutch competition. The Dutch are richer, they've got better financial instruments, and uh, they, uh, they've got deeper pockets than Elizabethan London. So about 1630, there's this uh, sort of face-saving agreement whereby the island of Run, which is the source of all the nutmeg, gets uh, given over to the, uh, 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 to the Dutch, and the English company uh, is given in return, just as a sort of face-saving device, a muddy island in the Hudson River called Manhattan, uh, which does, of course, turn out to be a, a, a good investment in the long run, a good-ish investment in the long run. But uh, 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 anyway, that's a different story. But after this, the company concentrates instead on the second best option, which is textiles coming out of Mughal, Mughal India. And uh, particularly quantities of high-value cotton, but also from further down the coast, uh, chintzes, uh, painted kalamkaris, um, and uh, uh, gorgeous, thin, um, very finely woven uh, mogul weaves called bafthawar, or woven air, um, which, all of which sell very well across not just Europe, but also the New World. And, and by the beginning of the 18th century, there's actually deindustrialization in Mexico um, because of the amount of uh, in the cheap, high-quality Indian cotton being, uh, being exported. And the company basically becomes the shippers of the Mughal Empire. And as the Mughals rise up, the company becomes ever richer, exporting uh, its, uh, its valuable wares around the world. And just to give a bit of context here, when the company is founded, the Mughal Empire, which of course embraces not just most of modern India, but modern, India, modern Pakistan, Bangladesh, and quite a lot of modern Afghanistan, controls about 37.8% of world GDP, while Britain controls about 3% of world GDP. And yet, that company, which is located uh, 100 years after its founding in a very modest building in Leadenhall Street, five windows wide, three stories high, uh, and which um, is owned entirely by its shareholders, and which in its head office a century into its existence still only employs 35 people. That company, by the beginning of the 19th century, has taken over the Mughal Empire uh, and is ruling India still from the city of London. It's a story so improbable that if it were fiction or a screenplay, no one would believe it. And yet this one company, right up, uh, until, well, at least until 1774, when the government begins to regulate and step in, um, has complete control of India. In popular culture, we think so much, when you think of the British in India, you think of you know, the merchant ivory India of, of parasols and palaquins. You think of Curzon and Kipling, uh, all those men in khaki shorts and solar topis. But the East India Company, which went on for more than double the length of the Raj, is almost forgotten 
to popular culture. And in both Britain and in India, the fact that the company was a company and not the British is somehow muddied over, which was something that the Victorians did. In the 18th century, it was very well known, and it was a cause of great scandal, that it was a bunch of merchants from a boardroom who was responsible for the conquest, plunder, looting, and asset stripping of this incredibly wealthy country. But by the 19th century, um, people like Macaulay were beginning to rewrite the history of the company, slightly whitewashing uh, events, because they were ashamed of the commercial and corrupt way in which India had been, had been uh, conquered. And Macaulay writes very, very brutally that uh, uh, the company looked on India much as a buccaneer would look on a galleon. Uh, in other words, as a source of, of loot and profit. And so both in Victorian England, then in colonial India, uh, you get this, you get, well, the, the, the Victorian spin it as a story of national glory and conquest, which is then inverted by Indian nationalists into a story of national oppression followed by liberation. But the fact that this is primarily a corporate story, a story of corporate violence and a story of corporate conquest, run by a company for profit for its shareholders, is forgotten. And this is important because one of the kind of, I suppose, more attractive aspects of this company is the fact that it makes no boat. There's no rhetoric of civilizational transfer. There's none of the stuff that the Victorians tried to pull off, saying that this is all about um, the West educating benighted India or bringing civilization and railways and so on. The company existed for profit as much as Goldman Sachs today exists entirely for profit. And there was no pretense that it was about anything else. But it was also, from the beginning, an oddly collaborative process. When Clive comes to Bengal in the 1760s, uh, initially to recapture Calcutta, which has been taken by Siraj Dalla, then to fight the French, he's about to return to Madras, where the company expects a French fleet to attack. Uh, in fact, it never comes, and it's a phantom fleet, uh, the result of dodgy intelligence and a dodgy dossier, rather like the, uh, the beginning of the Iraq War. Uh, but when that happens, he is contacted by a man called the Jagatset, who is the, means the banker of the world, the richest banker in Bengal. And this family of Mawari Oswald Jain bankers, originally from, uh, from Nagore uh, in Jodhpur state, who've come to Calcutta, uh, well, first of all, come to Moshidabad, um, attracted by the wealth of Bengal. At this point, uh, Bengal is the source of, of much of these textiles and the main center of Indian industry. And the, um, the Jagat set makes an offer, and he offers Clive two million pounds if he will topple uh, Nawab Sirajudaula. And from this point, right through until the, the final battle against the Marathas in 1803 that gives the company control of Hindustan, all this is done in collaboration with the bankers of Allahabad, Patna, and Banaris. And in a sense, the, the most difficult thing as a historian working today trying to understand this period is to understand why on earth any Indian banker would lend to such a voraciously ruthless company who were using their money to train up not white soldiers imported from London, 
but an army of 200,000 Indian sepoys. 1799, when the British army has a total of 100,000 troops just before the rearmament to face Napoleon at Waterloo and so on. That same year, the East India Company has a private army of 200,000 Indian sepoys, which are officered by a tiny 2% of white British soldiers and financed both, both by the revenues of Bengal and loans from the great bankers of India. Now, how on earth, why on earth uh, would any banker allow this? And how on earth did India allow this to happen? How would... Uh, uh, how did it happen that a company which never has more than 2,000 white factors in Bengal manages to pull off this ruthless and audacious coup? That's, in a sense, the, the subject which this book is trying to answer. How does it happen? And in short, there are, there are, there are um, a few answers. First of all, the company, in military terms, comes to India, or, come, or reaches this point of conquest in the 1740s, 50s, and 60s, on the back of two European wars, the War of the Austrian and Spanish Succession, when particularly Peter the Great in Prussia, sorry, Frederick the Great in Prussia, um, creates a whole new style of infantry warfare. The invention of the bayonet, the brown best musket, new ballistics with artillery, and, uh, and the existence of horse artillery, transforms warfare. And from the 1740s, for about 40 years, there's a window when the company and its French rival, the Compagnie des Andes, has no effective Indian um, uh, equal. The, these two companies using this new military technology are able to defeat much larger armies. By about 1779, 1780, both the Marathas and Tipu Sultan have caught up. But there's a 40-year window which allows the company to establish itself in Bengal and to seize the richest provinces of India and to use these revenues, which had previously been the main source of revenues for the Mughal Empire, to divert these to the East India Company. For after the Battle of Plassey and after the Battle of Buxar, from the 1760s onwards, the, the company... Um, uh, no longer has to do what traders have always done in India, which is to bring from Europe bullion of gold and silver, because Indians traditionally wanted very little from Europe. And this is a problem that traders have from the time of Pliny, from the time of Augustus. Pliny complains in his letters that the rich, decadent ladies of Augustus's Rome want Indian diamonds, want their bodies rubbed with Indian sandalwood, and want to clothe themselves in Indian silks. And the problem is that Rome has nothing to trade in exchange for this, so they just have to send Roman gold. This problem remains the problem for the East India Company throughout the, the, the 17th and 18th century, until the Battle of Plassey and, and Buxa, when suddenly the company realizes it need no longer bring gold and silver to trade with India. It merely taxes Indians and uses the profits from the land revenues to buy what they call the investment, in other words, the, uh, the silks, the Kalamkaris, the opium, and the other things they want to trade, and then to sell this for profit in, uh, uh, in England. And this is the source of the wealth of the company, this incredible wealth that, still, that soon grows to, to create about 30% of British import and exports, 30% of British customs revenue, to become the single largest employer in Britain, to build 40% of the London docks, 
uh, and to become this enormous multinational trading corporation, the first multinational trading corporation, which straddles the globe. By the 1770s they're grow, begin, and 1780s, they're beginning to grow opium in Bengal, which they sell illegally to China in the largest narco operation in history. Um, China wants Indian opium imported about as much as Trump wants Colombian crack cocaine imported to New York. Um, and, and yet they do this illegally with the profits. They buy tea, which they sell in India, in Europe, and also in Boston. And it's in Boston Harbor that East India Company tea is finally dumped. Uh, and there's a great deal of rhetoric in the Patriot Press about anxieties that the East India Company is going to be unleashed in the, uh, in the 13 colonies, just as it had been in, uh, uh, in Bengal. So this is a properly multinational company. And with that multinational company comes many of the things which we today fear about corporations. The East India Company invents corporate lobbying. It's the first company in the world to realize that you can lobby parliamentarians and change their policies to favor your company. So that that magic trick, which happens through democracy ever more today, whereby the interest of a company's shareholders magically become the interest of the state, happens for the first time with the East India Company. Equally and more darkly, the East India Company invents corporate corruption. In 1697, for the first time, the company is found offering share options to parliamentarians in exchange for the extension of its monopoly. These are all things that we imagine to be the great issues of our time, to be new and, uh, and novel problems for the 21st century, but they begin with the East India Company. It is the first great corporation. And so in this story, you have not just the, the story of this extraordinary, improbable story of one English company, which comes to overwhelm an entire subcontinent, an entire empire. But you have, on a meta scale, the, the, the much larger question of the power of the corporation against the power of the state. And this, of course, is you know, something that Elizabeth Warren is talking about in every one of her campaign speeches at the moment. How do you regulate big tech? How do you regulate big data? When a company straddles different tax jurisdictions, how do you make Amazon pay tax in, in, in Australia rather than in the Cayman Islands? Um, there's, an, there's an example very much of this nature in as early as, I think, about 1720, when the Nawab of the Carnatic comes and besieges Madras. They send out one man, Nikola Manucci, to negotiate. He speaks good Persian. And he says, you, sir, you can take this, this, uh, this fortress. You can destroy us all. You can sell us all into slavery. But your weavers will have no one to export their goods. Your, uh, your workmen will go, will go hungry. Uh, and your economy will be destroyed. We can just go off to Bombay. We can go off to Calcutta. We can take our... our and this you know, is exactly like Amazon last year saying, are we going to set up our new headquarters in Seattle? Or is it going to be in New York? Or is it going to be in Scotland? Uh, and that way that a large corporation can play off different legislatures, different governments, different tax regimes, comes for the first time in the history of the East India Company. I'm going to um, go over to a discussion now with Mira. But just to end, there's a wonderful quote um, which I think sort of frames this whole argument, which, is, which I put as the, uh, as the quote on the title page. 
And during the impeachment of Warren Hastings, the one time that Parliament actually confronts this problem and the, the East India Company is called to Parliament and put on trial, the only problem is that they get the wrong guy. Uh, they should have got Clive, and instead they get Warren Hastings, who at least has done some famine relief and uh, started the Royal Asiatic Society and speaks Bengali and, and, and Hindi and Urdu and all this sort of thing. Um, and the Lord Chancellor, at the beginning of that trial, he stands up and he makes a simple declaration. He says, corporations have neither bodies to be punished nor souls to be condemned. They therefore do as they like. Thank you. <laughs> what we'll do now is incorporate the Q&A with Mira's session so that we can keep the schedule, because I know a lot of you wanted your book signed beforehand, and William was a bit late getting here. Um, so what we'll do is go through questions now with Mira till about seven, uh, 6.55, and then Claudia will be on, and then we'll do the book signing. I'm sorry, <laughs> going over late and everything. Thank you. Thank you. That was oh, that was a really powerful story, and you. and you do tell a good story, uh, and I suspect that is as much your gripping narrative as it is your ability to pull together such fantastic, diverse sources. Uh, to tell a really evocative and timely tale. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll start with a question where you ended on, on, on the corporation, and um, the, the anarchy has been portrayed as a sort of reflection on the modern corporation, and you talked about it right now as well. Um, and you have, um, so, but, but it is as much about the relationship between corporation and state. And um, you've convinced us that you know the the corporation then and corporation now uh, do behave quite similarly, but the thing is that the state has changed significantly from from the imperial state sure. to the nation state. So how did that uh, did the particular character of uh, the the imperial British state um, affect the behavior and character of the East India Company? So. Uh, in general, I get the impression that the, the state interferes very little with the company before the 1770s. The company is bringing in about 30% of customs revenue. Mm. It is a regular flow of income for, for, the, for the British state, and so is seen as something welcome and positive, mm. um, but at, in which the government need not interfere very much. Apart from anything else, India is a long way away. It is. It's uh, it, on a good on a good sailing. You might get there in seven months. On a, if, if, with bad winds, it might take a year. To get a message backwards and forwards can take two years. So the guys on the ground have pretty much got whatever the directors are saying, whatever the government is saying. The the, the people on the ground have pretty well got carte blanche. Plus, um, no one can go there except with a company permit. If I'm a young a, a young Jacobean nobleman who fancies traveling the world, I can apply to the company to go and see it. Um, but without that permission, I'm not allowed to land. And the company jealously regards it. So you're not getting sort of independent uh, accounts of what's going on in India. Everything that's coming back is coming via a filter of the company. And what draws the attention 
of the company and what begins this process of turning the company first into a sort of public-private partnership and finally the nationalization is when the company cocks up and it cocks up incredibly badly and publicly and um, in the most horrific manner in 1770, when after six years of asset stripping Bengal and looting it and uh, letting its private servants conduct private trade in an incredibly ruthless and, uh, and, and, uh, 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 and violent manner, in 1770 a famine comes. Not just a famine, but a famine which wipes out a million people minimum. Um, some estimates put it as high as three million. One in, at least one in five in West Bengal. And this is the point for the first time that the news about the rapaciousness of the company really makes it into the British press. By 1772, <clears throat> there are two full-length whistleblower accounts which have followed a whole trickle of small pieces in the Gentleman's Magazine, the Spectator, Blackwell's Magazine, Blackwood's Magazine, and so on, about the starving in Bengal and the hundreds of thousands of corpses rotting in the streets of Calcutta. And this is William Boltz's uh, uh, book and um, Alexander Dow, two full-length books about the British rape of Bengal. After which you get a play on at the Haymarket with Clive being lampooned as Lord Vulture um, and beginning of effigies of, of Clive being burnt and quite a lot, I mean a surprising amount of, of outrage in the British press. Horace Walpole writes that uh, we have outdone the Spanish and the Portuguese in the New World. They at least had the excuse of faith. We have done it only for profit. And, and what happens is that the company in 1772 comes close to bankruptcy, having, having stripped, as, as Dow says, having stripped um, the, the bones of Bengal um, until they're bleaching in the wind. Uh, and there is no more profit to be extracted, and the, and the place is just a charnel house. In that year, the company goes massively into, into debt, the share price plummets, and Parliament is recalled and, uh, because the Bank of England can't produce the 10 million needed to bail it out. It has to be Parliament. And from that point, the state, as with the subprime crisis 10 years ago, like Nat West or something, has to, has to bail out the company because it is literally too big to fail. Um, and with that Regulating Act in 1774, then the India Act in 1784, and finally the nationalization of the company in 1858, the state wins this battle. So in this particular story, it ends with the victory of the state over the corporation. But whether, you know, the state will win against Google or Facebook. Tomorrow, you know, you're all going to get adverts for East India Company tea on your, on your social media feed if your phones are on at the moment. <laughs> Maybe that, that, these modern corporations don't need infantry and, and artillery. <laughs> so, uh, William, how do you see yourself? Um, do you see yourself as a sort of uh, brilliant storyteller who uses historical material? Or do you see yourself as a historian who can tell a good story? And you know, I'm, I'm sort of imagining two figures on, on each shoulder, sort of the historian and the storyteller, each jousting with, the, um, with each other sort of for, to have their way. So do you, do you have to often uh, mediate between the two? And how do you do that? So I don't see the two as being in conflict. I think that in a sense, when you've done your research, once you've spent your five years in the archives, um, you have a choice, you know, for the audience you're writing for and a choice as for the language you use. And it's a perfectly reasonable choice to choose to write for your peers, 
in, an, uh, uh, in a, a peer-reviewed academic press volume um, in academic language, or it seems to be an equally valid response to, to write it in, 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 in literary prose in the manner that Gibbon or Macaulay or Acton or, or, or I mean people I mean people went out and bought the latest volume of Gibbon you know um, in, there were queues in the streets for it it isn't as if history has always been something which has been restricted to the academy and only recently broken out mm. the opposite is true history used to be something which people would queue up and and, and be hungry for mm. and it's really only since the Second World War that it, that in a sense it's um, become more normal to see serious history written in academic language. The person who most influenced me was my um, was uh, 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 my favourite medieval historian, who um, I met when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge. Although he'd long um, left Trinity, my college, to to go to the Scottish Highlands to write, because he realised that, in a sense, that you the, the business of being a, an active academic historian meant that with all the PhD students you had to supervise, with the exams you had to mark, that you couldn't actually do the level of research and level of writing that he wished to do. And that was Sir Stephen Runciman, mm. the great historian of the Crusades, the, the author of the, of the Fall of Constantinople. And he, he had, I remember going and talking to him, and he said, if you want to write, you should write. Uh, if that's what you want to do, if you want, if, you know, there, you know, you, there are there are many ways of being a historian, as there are many ways of being, you know, uh, a novelist or or anything else. And and he always said, you know, you, you know, you can go down the PhD route and and end up lecturing, and and it can be incredibly fulfilling. That you know, many people find that that teaching students to be the most fulfilling thing in the world. But if you want to write, that will interfere with that. So I've always had a very clear thing in my head that. Uh, uh, it, it isn't something that's in conflict, but it's just a different way of doing the same job. And I, you know, th there are a hundred pages of, of, of footnotes and bibliography and, and, and sources in six languages, as you would find in an academic book. But it is written in, in one hopes, in the sort of prose Absolutely. that a, a you know a novelist might write in, or whatever. Absolutely, it's <laughs> fantastic. And and I, I'm often faced with the fact that I I find that sometimes facts hold back. Uh, Hold me back from telling a good story, but you've you've obviously overcome it. So it's it's. it's I think I think facts. Um, if you, I mean, I've always found that this is my first book, which takes a wide sweep of history. Up to now, my strategy has always been to deeply focus in on one or two years in one place. So White Moguls mm -hmm. was set in five years in Hyderabad. Absolutely. Last Mughal is set in two or three years in 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 Delhi. And Return of a King is three years in Afghan history. And if you spend five years researching two years in one place, you can really get go deep in. So that in a sense, you if you choose something like, for example, 1857 in Delhi, for which there is incredibly rich sources from both sides, you can kind of know what's happening almost every minute of every day. Uh, and, and you can reconstruct very densely the the reality in such a way that your writing can appear to be novelistic. You can say it was shining on the, you know, it was, it was a bright sunny day on the morning of the 13th of April, uh, 1857, because you have two or three accounts which say that it was shining that day rather than cloudy or foggy. Um, and, and therefore you can write with the detail um, that a novelist can bring to a situation. And, and that in a sense has always been my aim, which is to, try and be able to research deeply enough that you can reconstruct the past with the, 
the depth that a novelist can bring to a description. But the difference being is that, you know, you cannot say it was a shining on the morning if you don't have something that tells you it was. Or, um, and this is the first time, I, in a sense, I've done a, a macro history pulling back, which, which obviously is slightly more dangerous mm. <laughs> and vulnerable uh, thing, but it's... Uh, um, but I thought, you know, so after, what, after yeah, 20 so years on the company, I thought if I didn't yeah. do it now, I never would. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> this, is your, this is your fourth book on uh, sort of moments in the life of the East India Company. And, and the first three, as you, you mentioned, were, were quite different in, in the sense that they were um, more focused on, on, on character. And, and uh, um, this, you know, you've, you've kind of done a Hannah Arendt in reverse, so going from um, the human condition and origins of totalitarianism to Eichmann in Jerusalem. You've gone the other way to talking about uh, Bahadur Shah Zafar and uh, the White Mughals to talking about um, the character of an organization, of an institution. So what, what was involved in that shift? So what, I mean, what the great joy about writing this period is that both the company and the Mughal world contain fantastic sources. The moguls, I mean, the, the company sources are, in a sense, very obvious. They're either in the, in, in the British Library or they're in the National Archives in Delhi. Allegedly, there's 35 miles of East India Company sources sitting under the British Library. I don't know whether that's actually true or not, but, uh, um, but there's certainly, you know, vast quantities of company material. But the mogul stuff is much more elusive, but equally good if you go for it. And I worked for the, all four books with this um, wonderful scholar of 18th century um, Indian Persian called Bruce Wanell, who, who comes and lives with me. He doesn't know the history, but he knows the language. And we go through the, we photocopy these manuscripts in Tonk and Patna and Rampur and, and, and all these centers of, of, of Mughal, um, these fantastic Mughal libraries, as well as the National Archives and the, and the British Library. And um, we then work through them together, and, and, and he produces these gorgeous translations, um, which does, I mean, I mean, there's one particular historian here who um, actually has, has been in English since the 18th century, but is the kind of dream find for someone writing the sort of history I'm writing, which is Ghulam Hussain Khan. Who's, who's, who's well known. He's not, a, he's, not, he's not a find. There are marvelous studies of him by Kumkum Chatterjee and, and so on. But he is like a, a sort of, he's like Edward Said writing not in 1970, but in 1780. Um, and he's the first articulate Indian who really thinks through what colonialism means, what it's like to leave, not just to lose a battle and to lose power, but for a whole social class suddenly to have no purpose in, in, in the economic sphere. You know, the, the old Mughal cavalry have no place in warfare anymore. Uh, no one's employing the artisans or the poets or the painters. Uh, these men are now out of work. A whole, a whole world has, has sort of run out of steam. Um, and, he, and equally, you know, the way that the Mughals might have looted and pillaged, but ultimately kept their winnings in India and spent their winnings employing artisans to build their things. While um, the British, and he describes for the first time the drain of wealth, the way that the gold and silver, um, which is accumulated by the British, is not spent in, in, by and large in India. It's shipped back. So that during the Bengal famine, I think there's 150 million in 1770 that's actually just remitted to London. Um, and he notes, you know, in a sense, the way that, that silver becomes scarce, that gold becomes scarce, that there is no, there is no coin left. 
Um, and, and these sort of detailed observations by an extremely intelligent observer are, are you know, solid gold for, for, for the historian. And there's a few other finds we made, like, I mean, there's some extraordinary Frenchmen in India at this time who are, you know, are as critical uh, uh, of the Mughal world as they are of the British world, and they don't, they're observing either. And there's one character who, who's never, oddly, never been translated fully from, uh, from French to English, who's, who's a friend of Voltaire called the Comte de Madave. He loses a fortune at, at, a, at a gambling table and has to go and make, and has to go out to India, hopefully, to make his, he never brings it back. He, he dies out there. But on the way, he writes this three-volume travel account. He meets Shah Alam, he meets all the main players, and he's terribly funny about the British. You know, he, he sees the Brits as these absurd characters uh, who, uh, you know, in, in the way that only a Frenchman could do. Um, <laughs> And writes with great biting wit about the, this this absurd ga chess game going on in, in India, and, and and these sources just sort of immediately, you know, allow you to get that kind of level of detail and understanding, which uh, which is so hard often. So, so Ghulam Hussain also um, notes that you know, uh, with with great bewilderment, at how uh, the new form of, as it were, governance. It's just completely unfamiliar yeah. that you know yeah. it goes from being uh, the, the the familiarity that the Mughals at least strove towards. I mean, they'd always manage it uh, to to the to the English who uh, to the company who treat uh, their um, those who they have to govern as populations. And he you know he has this funny bit where he says every time they come across something that might remotely be a useful fact, they pull out their diary and start <laughs> writing uh, yeah. to be passed on to later. Um, so, you know, yeah. just, just completely lose that connection of interpersonal relations. So does that, does that affect uh, the way in which, um, you know, the, the, can we then compare the two at all? Or is it, is it a systems change altogether? So I'm, what I'm, I mean, when I'm, Giving this lecture in, in England, the thing I'm emphasizing is always the loot and the plunder, because the English have, have sort of persuaded themselves that somehow their empire is different from other empires. That uh, you know the Romans may have pillaged, the, the the Belgians may have pillaged, the Germans may have pillaged, but somehow the Brits, you know, it was all parasols and and uh, uh, and uh, smiling maharajas and lovely elephants swishing their tails, and, and it was all. Uh, but when I'm giving this lecture in India, the the thing I I note because again the Indian textbooks mythologized in a sense in the, in, in the nationalist direction, in the opposite direction, whereby, uh, you know, it was, it, it was an entirely offensive thing. I, I emphasize the collaboration, uh, which is something that, you know, is, is not new in academia, that Chris Bailey, Kumkum Chatterjee, that whole generation, Rajat Kantaray, have, have written huge amounts on this. But uh, it hasn't trickled down in beyond academe. People are not aware of the degree of collaboration, particularly in Bengal. And the way that the company was so clever about making its interests the interests of those who, who uh, lived in Bengal, and the way, that, for example, the permanent settlement in the 1790s, they split up the big <coughs> Mughal estates uh, and auctioned them off. And who buys it? It's, it's the up and rising Hindu financial classes and um, the Maliks, the Debs, the Tagores, these sort of uh, North Calcutta gentry, the, the Badralok. And they then become part of the British system. They get dragged into it. And they come to see the company ruthless, asset stripping, plundering as it is, as the least worst option, as the, uh, uh, as the option which, um, where their capital is safest, ultimately. 
that you know the, they, they don't believe that the Marathas or the Mughals will be as, as a good at repaying interest on time because ultimately that's what you know the two the two bunch of financiers talking the same they may speak one may speak Persian and and, and Bengali and, and Mawari the other may speak English but in terms of interest rates and so on they speak exactly the same language and they understand each other brown or white the corporate interest the, the corporate interest win out yeah. but also the, the, what I'm very struck by at this period and this is something I wrote more about in white moguls than in this book but it's equally true is that the Raj, which has this rhetoric of, uh, of a civilizational mission and so on, is deeply racist. It, it keeps completely apart. There's no intermarriage. They're living separately in the civil lines. The cantonments are completely different. The, there's a whole white officer class, which is, which is not mixing with the Indian soldiery. Um, while the company, despite being as ruthless and existing only for profit, is existing for profit in collaboration with, with, with the soldiers who are in the army, the sepoys in the army. It's existing in collaboration with the financiers who are paying for it. And the people of Bengal ultimately are investing much of their money in company bonds, which again is paying for the conquest of the rest of India, but because it is offered you know, a, a secure repayment in five years with interest. So the company has, is very genius in a sense in knowing how to buy appeal to the the profit motive. Um, it pays its soldiers twice as much as Tipu pays its soldiers. Um, and through this way, it is oddly collaborative. And you also get at this point you know, mar intermarriage. So one in three Brits at this period is, is either living with or uh, uh, leaving their goods to Indian women or Anglo-Indian children. Uh, and there is this degree of mixing on that level, as well as on a business, as well as across the, 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 the ledger books and the uh, and, and the cantonments. I'm, I'm aware we're running out of time, but would you would you like to share with us um, plans for your next uh, project? Is it going to continue, <laughs> uh, or to talk about sort of? The so the, the next project is actually already done um, and is out. <laughs> it's a very short project, um, but it's something I've been doing alongside this, and it's coming out next month. Um, and it's an art history project that, in a sense, is an appendix to this. It's called Forgotten Masters. And it's the painting by Mughal uh, master painters commissioned by the East India Company. And that's opening as a uh, show at the Wallace Collection in London in, uh, in December. And there are these, uh, what's fascinating is, is you have these Mughal master painters, many of whom are trained up in, the, in this tradition of Mansur and the great Mughal masters painting turkeys and zebras and, and, and uh, hoopoos, of which there are many fine examples in Australian galleries and museums. Um, the nicest Mughal uh, image of a kingfisher, I think, is in Adelaide by Mansur. Um, and these guys are, in the 18th century, given French botanical studies. Uh, these new uh, books from the, the generation of Linnaeus and so on, beginning to name the names of different genuses and so on. And the Mughal, these books, in a, in, a, in a classic Mughal picture of a flower, you'd have butterflies and, and a sort of paradise garden in the background. The French botanical books have a single iris against a perfectly white background. And these Mughal masters are given these and told, in a sense, to use that style, but to use their skills. So you get this wonderful hybridity in, in art, too, at this period. And, and this stuff has, has been 
it's, it's awkward for galleries because it's on one hand it's seen in India as colonial art, although it's by Mughal painters. And in Britain, there's, again, there's this sort of embarrassment about empire and it all just, in a sense, got packed away and put in, a, in an attic in 1950. Um, and all those pictures of, you know, um, uh, Dr. Bryden and, the, and the, 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 the one man to escape from the retreat from Kabul, that gets packed off the walls of the Tate and sent to a provincial regimental library in Taunton. And, uh, and, and you know, it, it, all this stuff. So it's nev there's never been a show of this stuff uh, in London. So that's the next project, and that'll be op up next month. Congratulations. <laughs> We're looking forward to that. I think, I think we can um, open the floor up for questions now. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can we not answer, get a couple of questions? Or? Okay. All right. I'm sorry about that. If anyone wants to ask a question, I'm very happy to do it at the book signing. So uh, uh, buy a book. <laughs> I'm sorry to take up <laughs> the question time, but it's such a pleasure this evening to move the vote of thanks to William for a fascinating illumination of the history of the extraordinary East India Company. And on your behalf, I must also thank Mira for being an exemplary interlocutor. Colin Steele and I have tried to lure Willie to Canberra for about eight years at least, so it's a big achievement to have him here tonight, larger than life. It's great to be gathered in this beautiful new auditorium, but perhaps we should have changed venues to Manica Oval or the Bruce Stadium. <laughs> so great with the numbers of devoted fans thirsting to hear you speak. The message from Canberra is quite simply, come back <laughs> next time. And the new book sounds absolutely marvelous. And Colin, you and I might become professional scalpers and collect a bit of loot. <laughs> and a bit of, uh, indulge in a bit of capital corruption. I've read all William's major books and some little ones as well, and every book of the anarchy, which I think is absolutely marvelous. If you haven't bought a copy, please do, and William will be glad to sign it. A few years ago in India, I visited a wonderful old man, Mr. Ram Advani, who for almost 71 years ran a legendary bookshop in the city of Lucknow. In the course of our conversation, I asked him who he thought were the best writers in India at the time. Sometimes in India, and forgive me for saying this, um, there is a little reserve in expressing admiration for non-Indian writers, but immediately, Mr. Advani said, for non-fiction, William Dalrymple. <laughs> so please join me in thanking William and Mira for an excellent conversation. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.